Are you that weirdo who enjoys a counterfeit artifact for sale on the black market? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Okay, and hello. Oh my gosh, we are alive and well. This is our first episode back from our summer vacation. Oh, who am I and what are we? I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Weird. We're two friends on a podcast, having cocktails, and talking about weird shit. And thank you so much for joining us for Happy Hour. Yes. Welcome, friends and fellow weirdos. If you're new here, hello, hello, hello. Come sit down. Have a cocktail. If you're not new, welcome back. I like how you always explain that we're people on a podcast and not just somehow a podcast. We could be lizards. We, we could be robots. Meerkats. Sex bots. I'm, Sex- I'm only going to do robot stuff. <laughs> 1989. Wait, what are they called? Will you leave a message? 1989 answering machines. Yes, we are two... <laughs> Sex AI talking heads that are into true crime and the paranormal. Or meerkats. You decide. It's it's anybody's guess at this point. So we are back. Thank you for being patient after our summer vacation. It's always a busy time for us. The beginning of summer, the end of spring, you know, love's in the air. We're- <laughs> that's, that's why we're busy. It's all the love in the air. Yes, it is. We're swatting it back. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Another flawless intro. Yes, of course, of course. Meerkats and spring fever. Yeah. So we are back, and we are back with a true crime. Would you say this is true crime full on or true crime adjacent? No, this is 100% true crime. It's just not a murder. Yes. Or is it? Ooh, could be twists yes twist before we get into it do we have a cocktail or do the people just need to tune into our instagram to see what's coming up this week well i they could do both they could tune in we always post our cocktail pictures and recipes on our instagram i am drinking a riff on a pog the famous hawaiian juice mixture combo a pog sparkler is in the works it's delicious refreshing because it is hot as balls where i live we broke a heat wave record since 1950 it was the hottest memorial day we've had oh my lanta and that's on global warming people so like like tiffany said check our socials we always have our drink pictures and recipes and that will be up the day our episode is released did you ever collect pogs when you were in middle school? I sure did. Slammers. I, I was just going to say I had the best slammers. I had like a jade one. I was so cool. And you had that like long plastic tube. Yes. I think pogs are making a comeback. And I'll tell you what, my husband has all of his pogs in our storage shed. All of them. All 20 tubes. That's a lot of tubes. <laughs> I feel weird saying that about your husband. I'm sorry. (laughs) He has all of the tubes and the pogs. And actually, maybe we should break them out and play pogs. I think you totally should. I bet your son would love that. And I think that 
you should garnish the drink with a real pog. Oh my goodness, I could. I totally could. Oh my I God. just might. It's fucking ridiculous. Okay. Slammer on the rim. That's it. It's happening. <laughs> Slammer on the rim? It's, that's the name of the drink. Slammer on the rim. It sounds like a sex position. <laughs> it it's it's a uh, double what's that double entendre is that right yep yep D- don't ask me if that's right I before recording started asked if forger was an actual word <laughs> well you're the smarter one out of the two of us so that's where we're at people you're the academic uh, out of the meerkats which just means that I sit on a book <laughs> while being a meerkat <laughs> Okay, so speaking of words that I'm not sure if they're actually words, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about infamous forgeries or counterfeit antiquities or forgers, forgers, fine arts, antiquities. We're breaking into the, I don't, we also talked, is this a white collar crime? Tiffany came up with the idea at lavender collar crime, artsy. It's got some flair. I like it. So lavender collar crimes. Yes. We're, we're coining the phrase. Yes. You've heard it here first. <laughs> well, I probably stole that from somebody on accident. Well, if you did credit to them, let us know if it was you. Am I going first or are you? I want to end on yours. Okay. Okay. I feel like you can really wrap up the episode. Oh my goodness. She's done it again. She has done it again. Word genius. Potato, potato. Okay, so my sources for the episode are a VanityFair.com article, um, a little bit of Wikipedia, and a 60 Minutes episode. So today I'm talking about Wolfgang Beltraki. Forgive me if I'm saying his name wrong. I've listened to it a thousand times. This is, this is the best I can do. <laughs> so Wolfgang was an art forger who copied not exact works, but instead forged paintings in the style of famous painters and passed them off as those artists' work. I love that. If that makes sense. So he wasn't copying an exact painting. He instead would paint something that he said the artist would have painted if they would have thought of it. Okay, so that is, I feel like... But then he would sign their name to it and attribute okay, it to so the Okay, so I'm artist. like, all right, if he is inspired by Van Gogh's style, by Van Gogh's style, did I just say Van Gogh twice? Are we in a, are we stuck in a loop? What? Oh, did the Matrix <laughs> just glitch? What just Where happened? Where are we? Oh my, it's, I'm dehydrated. <laughs> keep, keep, check, keep checking that cocktail, that'll help. So yeah, if you would have only been doing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It would have been different, but he did attribute the paintings that he made to those artists. So he would do like, uh, here's another one, Picasso, but instead of signing his own name, he signed Picasso's name. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's tricky. Wolfgang went to flea markets to purchase antique canvases, which he would thoroughly clean before using paint typical of the era of the painter, even painting on the same surfaces the masters would use. For example, he painted on a wooden bridge to recreate the flooring another painter used. Okay, that is, I have to say, genius. He was very, wait, did I say he was very thorough and masterful? Am I in the, are we in the Matrix? We are. We're, something's happening here. Fuck. 
He was very thorough and masterful and incredibly talented. He could paint anything, any style. Honestly, he is an incredibly talented painter. I just feel like he could have just been so famous in his own right. Mm-hmm. Born Wolfgang Fischer, Wolfgang was born in 1951 in Germany. His father was a house painter and a restorer of churches. And his father also supplemented his income by producing cheap copies of Rembrandt's Picassos and Cezanne's. Wolfgang inherited his father's artistic skills, obviously, but he was a million times better. Wolfgang claimed that he first copied a Picasso painting when he was 14 years old, and he did it in a single day. Three years later, Wolfgang enrolled in an art academy, but ended up skipping most of his classes. So clearly he didn't really need the art academy. As a young man, Wolfgang kind of went through a wild child hippie phase. Mm -hmm. He experimented with drugs such as LSD and opium. He traveled through Europe. He lived in Amsterdam. He lived in Morocco. He was very nomadic. He told stories about riding a Harley and doing drugs with um, U.S. soldiers after Vietnam. Okay, cool, dude. That, I mean, he sounds cool as shit. Honestly, I know we're supposed to dislike this guy, but he was so talented and led such a wild, crazy life. It's kind of hard to hate him. Right. What's that saying? They say hate the player, not the game. Hate the game, not the player. <laughs> no, it's the other way. I think hate, hate the, the player, player not, the game. not the game. Um, And during this time, he did a little bit of art forgery here and there. One day during his wanderings, he bought a pair of winter landscapes by some unknown 18th century Dutch painter. Uh, They were not really expensive. They were around $250 each. I mean, that's expensive for me, but not in the art world. I mean, I Uh, think, right, that's expensive for me as well. But I guess if you're talking fine art, that's not really. Chump change. Yes. Uh, Pennies. Wolfgang knew that similar pieces that had ice skaters sold for five times that price. So he took the paintings and painted a pair of skaters into the scenes and resold the canvases for a considerable profit. Okay. Well, see, I don't know. Is that considered forgery? Yeah, because he altered the artist's work and claimed that the artist did it. Oh, he still claimed that the artist didn't, he didn't sign it as like, because, uh, see, I don't know. That's the painter's signature were, were on it. They were just, I think it was just kind of like in vogue to have ice skate paintings at that time and place. So he would just add them to paintings. I wonder why he just wouldn't paint his own. Because I think he knows that he didn't have the clout, really. Yeah, I mean, he can mm-hmm. paint anything, but his paintings would be, what, worth a couple thousand dollars, whereas mm-hmm. if it's a well-known artist's work, it'll be worth 10 times that mu- that amount. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, everybody knows the trope of the, what is it, starving artist, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So after this first round of ice skater forgeries, he just started buying old wooden frames from flea markets and painting his own ice skating scenes and passing them off as the works of old masters. He said in the early days, the forgery wasn't his main occupation. Sometimes he'd do like 10 in a couple of months. Other times he wouldn't do any for months at a time. It was mainly when he needed an influx of cash. 
And okay. honestly, he could paint, paint, like he was so fast if he wanted to be. He could do some of these works in a couple of days. It was truly incredible. In the early 90s, Wolfgang had to put his art on hold. The Gulf War was happening at the time and people just weren't spending their money on art. Mm -hmm. So he did what any down on his luck art forger does. He started writing and shooting a documentary about pirates, which he hoped to sell to a television network. (laughs) Duh. Uh, With money earned from forgeries, Fisher bought an 80-foot sailboat and hired a five-man crew. He planned on sailing around the world from uh, Madagascar to South America, just kind of all over. And he was going to follow the careers of historical and some contemporary buccaneers like Sir Francis Drake and Pirates of the South China Sea. Okay. So just your typical, you know, day job. Mm-hmm. Just something to, you know, to fall back just on. Just a, a fine uh, artist forger moonlighting as a documentary producer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes no big deal just you know day in the life and this is how he met his future wife helene in 1992 oh please tell me she was a pirate she was a fucking pirate no she wasn't i wish she was (laughs) helene's boss was a backer on the pirate project oh okay and their partnership would change the art world forever Oh, paint me like one of your French girls, Jack. And that was the inspiration for that movie. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, kidding. Really? No, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. So it wasn't exactly love at first sight for Helene. She said, quote, I thought the guy was a real big mouth, a lunatic. Oh. <laughs> However, Wolfgang fell hard and said that the first time he saw her, he knew he was going to marry her. The pirate project fell through. Like, who would have thought? I know. I'm shocked. I mean, it honestly does sound like a fun show. Paint me flabbergasted. But I just, I don't think that somebody like Wolfgang could really keep it together. I'm I'm not one to diagnose, but it sounds like Wolfgang is a genius, maybe with a little bit of neurodivergence. Maybe a little Adderall would have helped. Perhaps. So although the pirate project fell apart, the couple's relationship grew and they were married and soon had a daughter together. This is also when Wolfgang Fischer became Wolfgang Beltraki because he took Helene's name. I was just going to ask, did he take Helene's last name? Yes. So I think in this case, Fischer would be his maiden name. Uh, Yeah, I wasn't sure. Although, would he be considered a maiden? I don't think so, but I don't think there's... Manor name. Yes. Manor. I think Mm -hmm. that's the actual term, manor name. Helene Beltraki discovered Wolfgang's forgery very early on in the relationship. They were at his house when she saw some pretty famous 20th century paintings hanging on the walls. (laughs) And she asked, are these real? And he said, they're all mine. I made them. And so she just flat out asked him, so you're an art counterfeit, or you're an art counterfeiter. And he said, exactly. So he was upfront about it. Soon after this conversation, 
I thought you were frozen, but you were just literally frozen. We are in the fucking Matrix. No, I am just like so into this story. I am like listening. I'm hanging on every word. Soon after this conversation, Wolfgang asked his wife to be his accomplice. (gasps) I'm loving this more and more. Oh my, I love this story. So this is what they did. And this is how the greatest scam in Wolfgang's life went. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I can't stand it. Helene claimed she was left an art collection from an estranged grandfather. (laughs) She said he had hidden the paintings away to keep them safe from Nazis. And she really did have a grandfather in this time and place. So Mm -hmm. in reality, Wolfgang had painted the paintings, of course. They used tags from old German art houses and they tea stained them so they would look old. They even had Helene dress up as her own grandmother and pose for photos that were printed on antique photo paper, of course. So Uh they hung up the pictures on a wall of a room and took pictures of Helene, who was posing as her own grandmother in front of the photos on this antique paper, saying this is more proof that these are old photos of my grandfather's. Wow, they really went method for this. Yeah, and on the 60 Minutes, there was an art um, expert that said that that is like, you know, the best form of evidence of something is to have old photos of mm-hmm. the of the works. Mm. So the photos combined with Wolfgang's flawless work and masterful use of vintage materials were all it took. The couple pulled the scam off. Um, art houses bought paintings they first sold one and then a couple of years later they sold the collection basically Mm -hmm. to these art houses and I believe it was in this collection that there was one painting for example that sold for over a hundred thousand dollars wow um it was called girl with swan they attribute it to another famous painter and it was like an incredible amount of money for them to get from one work so they kept selling paintings from this um collection that was her grandfather's making Uh money and they lived a lavish life for a while they kind of traveled around they had a beautiful home and they just honestly lived the life they had parties like Gatsby like it was incredible uh it was said that His paintings were just kind of all over. There was an example that in 2004, Steve Martin bought a painting for $860,000. Whoa. Um, There was another case or there was another time in 2007 when a French gallery sold a portrait of a woman um, for over $3 million to a Dutch collector. That is so crazy. Yeah, they were... As, like I said, they were living the, the damn life. And you said this is in 2004. So this is the early 2000s. So this is pretty, I mean, I feel like because I was, it seems recent to me, but it is really like 15 years ago. But I know, it, it feels was fairly like five recent. minutes ago. It really does. I mean, that's how fast time flies. But this was in this pretty recent as far as like, you know, some of the true crime stuff that we cover. Oh, yeah. It's very recent. And it wasn't until around this time in the early 2000s when one small mistake using a tube of white paint that was not accurate for the era of the painting (gasps) gave Wolfgang's forgery away. 
He got sloppy. The paint was detected by an authenticator and the jig was mm. up. Mm. Basically, the whole reason why this painting had some extra authentication because there they Wolfgang's paintings had been authenticated over the years, but he like mm-hmm. I said, he always used materials that were true to the era. He did testing to make sure he was using all the right materials. He would buy these antique canvases, he would do all of this stuff. Um he just I don't know how he ended up using the wrong paint. I guess when you have that much art, um, you know, that much art supplies around you, I guess it's an easy mistake to make. But basi- basically, he kind of pissed off somebody that he sold the painting to because he didn't have extra paperwork that was normally not required. Mm-hmm. So that person who bought the painting put in some extra time mm-hmm. with the authenticators. Okay. I mean, it could be that he made a mistake. I don't know. Wolfgang doesn't really strike me as someone who could be careless. I think it may be, in my opinion only, he was maybe a little bit overconfident. That he was maybe. like, ah, no, you know, it's so good. Nobody, we've done it this far. Maybe they're not going to notice. Yeah. And he, in the interviews, I mean, he will say that he is that good. Yeah, so maybe he and if it hadn't been for the difference in um paperwork or the lack of paperwork that he kind of pissed that buyer off, he might have gotten away with it. I don't think he would have ever been caught ever. Yeah. I really don't. There was a painting that he did that the artist's widow bought and said it was the best painting her husband had ever done. <gasps> which isn't very kind, but that's how good he was. Wolfgang and Helene Beltraki were arrested on August 27, 2010 in Germany. During the trial in autumn of 2011, Wolfgang admitted forging 14 paintings um, by various artists. In reality, Wolfgang says he has forged hundreds of works. (laughs) In the 60 Minutes episode, he said he is probably one of the most exhibited painters in the world. Probably. He, He thinks that he has paintings up Anywhere that fine art has paintings on display. Some of his work was on the cover of art houses, like catalogs, and it was his work. Showcased as other famous artists. Yes. I would love for Wolfgang, I know he probably will never do this because he'll incriminate himself, but I would love for him to walk through five fine art galleries and museums all over the world and point out which ones are his that would be fascinating to me they did a documentary on him which I didn't have time to watch but I do want to watch it and I wouldn't be surprised if he did do something like that Mm. in October 2011 Wolfgang was sentenced to six years in jail his wife Helene was sentenced to four although it was an open prison situation as long as the pair had a job so they weren't there the entire time I guess I mean they're not really a danger to anyone it doesn't no. bother me that they're out but, because what are they going to like graffiti a building with a beautiful painting? Like, they're going to paint do? a mustache on the Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> One thing the 60 Minutes episode really um, expressed was how much Wolfgang changed the art world. Since Wolfgang was caught, the art world has been a bit traumatized. Authenticators are afraid to do their jobs and many of them won't. One person interviewed said that he flat out wouldn't tell someone if they had a forgery. Really? Why? 
I think there's just so much to it. If you find out that somebody does have a forgery, then whoever authenticated the work in the first place could get in trouble. There's been lawsuits because people sued the art houses that sold them forgeries. I mean, there's a lot. It's it's not just Wolfgang who is kind of tangled up in the whole mess that he created. Everybody in the chain was affected. One of the few companies that will still authenticate art gave a startling piece of reality to the interviewer. He claimed that around 90% of the art he authenticates is a fraud. (gasps) And I bet that a good portion of those pieces belong to Wolfgang. In the interview, Wolfgang was asked if he thought he had made a mistake. And Wolfgang replied, yes, I used the wrong titanium white. And that is the story of one of the greatest or maybe the greatest art forger, Wolfgang Baltraki. Okay, so I'm fascinated. I'm obsessed. But I just do want to say that I don't want to sensationalize forgeries and forgers and counterfeit fine art. Uh, the, The original artists dedicate their entire lives, like you said, the trope of a starving artist for their whole entire lives. They suffered and quite literally starved and then just to reach success after they've passed and then have somebody literally feed off of their success is upsetting um but yeah I think the reason why it's I totally agree with you I think the reason why it's an easier crime to kind of shrug your shoulders at is because typically the people who are hurt are the uber wealthy right it's like, Pain. oh, somebody who can spend $40,000 or $300,000 on a painting got ripped off. It's not the saddest thing in, that I've ever heard. Well, and they, you know, look, this, I don't know if there's any art artists or people in the art community listening, but here's the thing, you know, you have someone spend $860,000 on fine art hanging on their wall. They do, they did receive for payment a beautiful piece of artwork but also I think what it comes down to is bragging rights really name dropping I think that they could sort of turn the whole thing on its hat hat we're in the head. fucking matrix we yeah are well in the you matrix. wear hats on your head so it makes sense I would just say I have a Beltraki forgery I have one absolutely of them. I would just use that he's he's painting now under his own name And it's the one thing that I was sort of like left with was I think that he is honestly so incredibly, incredibly talented. But I think that what makes somebody an artist is more than just the skill. It's also being able to 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 make your own inspiration for the piece. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it to to conjure up the image to make your own idea. Like if you're a true artist, you don't copy right right it's the having the internal inspiration and the creativity and that like the je ne sais quoi that a true artist would look at something like and say creative. I'm gonna make that art or think of right. something and say I'm gonna make that art you know looking at right. lilies in the pond and thinking I know how to paint this the right, right way right what have you so I that's the only thing but he honestly is incredibly talented and I would buy a piece of his own original work 
if it was, you know, a lot less than what he's used to selling it for. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, I'm going to research him and I want to see what he painted. And and some people did keep his work after they knew it was a counterfeit because it was so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you did, with the people that bought his paintings did, they, in exchange, they did get a beautiful piece of artwork. They just, it's not painted by who they thought it was painted by. Yeah. And he did have to pay some reparations for things like that so yeah there's a lot to the story obviously uh, we don't you know when we do these we can't get into every nook and cranny of a story but it was a fascinating one and I would love to learn more about him too and I love these kind of stories where you know nobody died well it's not necessarily a victimless crime but if uber wealthy like Steve Martin's gonna be okay yeah he'll be just fine he's just fine (laughs) I don't think he cries himself to sleep about that. No, I don't think. I mean, he's like, dang it. Remember that time I bought the counterfeit art for almost a million dollars? Isn't that funny? Also, (laughs) remember when I was in Roxanne? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what's a bigger, who, who, what's a bigger crime? I don't know. That's the one where he has the fake nose, right? Yes, yes, yes. And he's like the fire chief or captain or or whatever, and he has that huge prosthetic nose. <laughs> Honestly, who knows what the bigger crime is? Uh, that was oh, a fantastic God. story. I was quite – there's not many times that I am speechless, and I was hanging on every word. That is fascinating. And you told it so beautifully. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I'm so excited to hear your story. Okay. Well – it's pretty strange. It is pretty strange. Do, 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 do. Wait, <laughs> are we going to get sued for that? Do, do. Oh, we m- I changed it. Yeah, a little offbeat. <laughs> um, okay, so the references for this tale um, are, it's an Atlas Obscura article. It's one of my main Ooh, references. I love them. Me too. And this one is written by Dolly Stoles, and it is, fantastic it's called uh actually i'm not gonna say the title because i don't want to give it away right off the bat but everything as always is always linked in our description so you can go directly to this article um an archive archaeology.org article a sherlock uh excuse me a sherlock.org article and noveladventures.blogspot.com and Wikipedia. Can't forget to mention my bay. Um, okay, so a mummy found in the Middle East. October 2000, police in Pakistan got wind that a black market antiques dealer named Ali Akbar was selling a mummy in its sarcophagus for an easy breezy $11 million. This archaeological find was kind of a big deal for Pakistan because ancient Persians, and it was of Persian descent, weren't known to mummify their dead like the ancient Egyptians were. Mm. Authorities interviewed Ali Akbar, and he revealed the location of the mummy dubbed the Persian Princess. She was being kept with a tribal leader, Wali Muhammad Riki. 
Riki and Ali Akbar said that an Iranian man named Sharif Shah Baki found the Persian princess in Iran after an earthquake. The ground had opened up and he saw this sarcophagus and they all agreed to split, split the profits after selling her on the black market. That's some Indiana Jones shit right there. It really truly is. Pakistan and Iran are bordering countries. So think Mexico and USA, Portugal and Spain, Germany and Poland. You get the idea. They're right next to each other. So geography is kind of important in this case because an argument broke out between the neighboring countries who should take ownership or have rights to the Persian princess. What was it like on the, was the earthquake crack on the damn border? Well, here's, here's what happened. Okay, sorry. The Pakistan, no, it's okay. The, I left you hanging there. The Pakistani government claimed ownership of the Persian princess because she was being held in Pakistan when she was discovered by authorities. However, Iran claimed ownership of the Persian princess because she was not only found in Iran originally, but she was supposed to be Persian royalty. And of course, for those of us who didn't know, modern day Iran was formerly Persia. So Iran was ancient Persia. So it seems like Iran should get it. Right. Are we not allowed to take sides? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm just saying in this um, case... I don't know anything else about anything. I'm just saying in this case, it seems like it does. It was an Iranian princess, Persian princess in Iran. Yes. So, um, yes, because mo- like I said, modern day Iran is used to be formerly ancient Persia. Yeah. So technically, I think that Iran deserved rights. I don't think it's a finders keepers kind of situation when it comes to... Uh, ancient artifacts but I think maybe it is I don't know Um, okay so uh, but the conflict in which country deserved ownership didn't stop there a party based in Afghanistan which is a third neighboring country uh, believed that they deserved claim to this Persian princess have any guesses on who that party might be who the fucking Taliban. Yes. Okay. So the Taliban, and this is pre 9 11. So they were, had a lot of power in Afghanistan and within the Afga- Afghanistani government. So they also staked a claim and they said, well, technically, she was found in Afghanistan, but then was smuggled into Iran, but then also then smuggled into pa- Pakistan. So we deserve the rights to this. Persian princess. Uh, I'm, but, I'm just going to say I don't agree with them on anything. Of course not. They don't deserve shit. No, you, you, no. Uh, but when it was all said and done, Pakistan won control or kept control. They weren't, they weren't going to give her up. And um, she was displayed at the National Museum of Pakistan. After a positive pre-examination of her authenticity, she was announced to the world and then the in-depth investigation began, which was led by Asma Ibrahim of the National Museum of Pakistan. Some thought that she, she might have been a Persian princess who married an Egyptian prince 
which would make sense because mummification was traditional for ancient Egyptians. Mm -hmm. But at the time, the Persian Empire, also known as the Zoroastrians, left their dead out to be consumed by vultures instead of mummification. Go green. <laughs> so, once opened, the Persian prince, once the sarcophagus was opened, the Persian princess was laid on a reed mat layered with wax and honey, and inside a carved wooden sarcophagus, a, or also known as in other cultures, like kind of a coffin esque, mm-hmm. uh, which tends to typically be stone when it came to Egyptian culture however uh the top part was encased in stone so the top part of the sarcophagus was stone and the wooden part or the bottom part was wooden and on top of it she had a gold mask a gold crown and a gold breastplate that was inscribed inscribed with cuneiform which is the writing system of ancient persians it sounds beautiful it it, it sh- I will we'll post a picture. It, it she was pretty beautiful. I love when they do the like sometimes on the History Channel when they show the when they're finding new um, uh-huh. ancient Egyptian. So when, beautiful, so cool, and it's so like I don't know if it's like the magic of history, but it is. It's like magical. It is magical, except for when you're watching the big american host like try to wriggle through all the tunnels to get inside (laughs) no that's scary that part's a little stressful for me i was kind of sweating last time but once they start showing all these it's like incredible that these things are just perfectly preserved in the earth from so long ago it is magical Mm -hmm. it is it is magical so there were royal symbols carved into the wooden part of the sarcophagus and the breastplate read I am the daughter of the great King Xerxes. Mazarika, protect me. I am Rodogun. I am. And this would mean that she would be from the time period 600 BC, making her 26,000 years old. And it would be one, the only Persian princess that has ever been found mummified. One of a kind. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. Some hmm. things pointed to authenticity, like her hands were crossed over her chest and she was wrapped properly it, with bandages like an Egyptian mummy would be wrapped. Mm-hmm. However, as the investigation continued, signs of deception began to show. The breastplate inscriptions weren't grammatically correct for the time period, And whomever had inscribed the breastplate had used the Greek root of the name Rodogun and not the Persian root of the name that she would have used at the time. Further inspection of the royal symbols revealed they were good, but there were slight variations that didn't make them altogether correct. And also, kind of a dead giveaway is... There were pencil etchings underneath the carvings and around them, like a guide that someone had taken a pencil, drew out the carvings, and then etched them. Also, that McDonald's cup. Dead giveaway. 
There really is a fast food place right next to the pyramids, I heard. No, there's not. I've, I've heard that. Like in the pictures, it's always cropped out, but very, very close because there's so many tourists there. Really American tourists, I'm sure, that, you know, are sucker for the golden arches. I mean, how cool would that be, though, to be, eat at McDonald's oh, and look outside? Do they have like a pyramid special, like a number 12 that's like shaped like a a triangle shaped burger? (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, I don't know, King Tut fries or something. Good one. That's good. Yeah. Oh, maybe they have a special McFlurry. (laughs) (laughs) I really uh, call call me Egypt McDonald's. I got some ideas rolling around. Got some Maybe. ideas working in here. Um, okay, so I uh, lost my place. Um, that's fine. Okay, so the reed mat that the Persian princess was laid upon was carbon dated, and it found that it was only five years old. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, and they did. They dated the car. The wood. They carbon dated the wood sarcophagus, and it was dated to be two hundred and fifty years old. So pretty old, but not twenty six thousand years old. Old for the United States. Yes. I don't understand why this stuff wasn't done before three countries fought over the mummy. <laughs> okay, so they did like a pre. They were just first of all, I think they're very excited because if you have, like, I, I thought about. All right, so Pakistan is not known necessarily for, like Egypt, for their ancient antiques and their artifacts, and they just got so excited that they could be a contender, and maybe it was like their time to shine um, when it can't, you know, it could bring tourism in. Think about how much tourism, we just mentioned a freaking McDonald's, you know. So they were just like, wow, this is so big and so exciting and they did a pre-examination and everything kind of checked out as far as just like a very quick like oh maybe this is a real deal then the um museum got a hold of her and what she was on display and they began to like carbon date and chemical test and really go through everything in the meantime the three countries were still fighting over her so they never really stopped. Like the Taliban never went away. They were still saying like, hey, this is our mummy. Give her to us. And Iran was saying the same thing. Or Iran, excuse me, was saying the same thing. So in the meantime, they were still fighting over her. So at first they're just like, looks old, smells old. Checks out. And then they're like, let's bring in the scientists. Boo. Yes. Yeah. Pretty yes. Much. Okay. okay. Yes. <clears throat> So a CT scan revealed that the Persian princess was a four-foot, seven-inch woman who was 21 or over at the time of her death, and her teeth had been removed after death. Her body cavity was filled with a powdery substance, and the organs were removed, including her heart, which goes against ancient Egyptian mummification practices. The ancient Egyptians believed that... Your heart was a like treasured life source that you would need in the afterlife. I believe it was a treasured organ. So they always left the heart in the mummy. Hmm. Um, along, they also found tendons that were still intact that should have a long been decayed. Long been decayed. 
Uh, the CT scan further divulged lower spinal fractures and a broken neck caused by blunt force trauma. And the broken neck was the cause of death. Carbon dating and chemical testing confirmed what many were starting to believe, that the Persian princess was a forgery. Chemical testing proved modern drying agents were used to mummify her body. Her hair had been bleached uh, along with her body. Well, some places said her hair was bleached as in it was dyed blonde. Mm -hmm. And another source said that her hair and body had been bleached as as in washed so i'm not sure if they could physically see bleached like chemically bleached hair as as in a salon like you went and got it bleached um i know they did chemical testing on it so i don't really know if she was cleaned with bleached or when she was alive she had bleached hair as a fashion statement okay in 2001, a year later, bone and tissue carbon dating confirmed that this woman was not, in fact, a 26,000-year-old Persian princess, but an unknown woman who had died in as recent as 1996. Hmm. Total letdown. Everybody was devastated, and obviously everyone was like, never mind. We We don't want her. But who was the woman? That is what was so upsetting for me is because once everybody found out that she wasn't this Persian princess mummified thousands of years ago, they really didn't care. But it's still an unidentified woman that we need to figure out what happened to her and why this happened to her. Yeah. So uh, an unsolved murder investigation was open, but nothing ever became of it. Ali Akbar, the man who was caught selling her on the black market, and Wali Muhammad Riki, who was holding her corpse, were arrested by the Pakistani authorities for violation of Pakistan's Antiquities Act, but they were never charged with any kind of um, charges linked to foul play, Did they claim they just found her, like Doug? uh, Yeah. They robbed her from a grave? grave? No. I can't talk. I'm so sorry. No, they didn't claim that at all. They still stuck to their story that Sharif Shah Baka, who supposedly found her after the earthquake, that they had no idea who she was, where she came from. They just took their word on this man. And that man, Sharif Shah Baka, was in the wind. He's still in the wind. And he was never identified nor found. Could it just be one of those guys saying... It could be. Sounds suspicious to me. So I know. I know. Some investigators believe grave robbers dug up the Persian princess from a burial site near the border of Iran and Pakistan, then had forgers dry her body using modern modern methods over months to make it look like she was a 26,000-year-old mummified Persian princess from the Xerxes Empire in hopes to make money off some you know clueless millionaire that likes to buy black market antiques and antiquities um some believe this was an elaborate scheme to cover up a murder of a unknown victim woman in 1996 and we don't know there's never been any answers i kind of think they desecrated a grave and dug her up but Mm -hmm. that's still not okay 
It, I, 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 she must not have have anybody that is looking for her though, because I mean, we're hearing about this over here. I'm sure right after that happened, it was everywhere over there in the papers mm-hmm. and talked mm-hmm. about everywhere. And if somebody's loved one had recently been stolen from her grave, I'm sure they would have said something. She probably didn't have anybody to speak up for her. That's so sad. Yeah, there was actually when the news broke, because this was worldwide news in 2000. This was like one of the biggest archaeological discoveries in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and an American archaeologist, I believe in like the one of the big time New York museums, actually had received a call from a, an antiques dealer in from the Middle East the March before so it was March of 2000 and she was discovered by um, Pakistani authorities October 2000 he had received a call and was sent four Polaroids of what came to be the same Persian princess mummy so they had tried to sell her overseas to United States to a museum and he said I need more than just four Polaroids I can't this isn't and yeah. he eventually ended up contacting the FBI and Interpol um about the Persian princess but um it it was all over and then when everybody kind of found out that she wasn't the Persian princess it kind of just nobody cared anymore and it it's really sad actually that was very sad um she has never been identified nor have her killers but on the other side of that, we don't know if she was actually murdered. Yeah. Um, so one of the articles said that the way that her spine was fractured in the lower part and her pelvis, it would be consistent with maybe being hit by a car from the back. Mm-hmm. It would is like um, right where you like the front would the hood would have hit a woman of her size. Mm-hmm. Um. So it could have been an accident. It could have been an accident. It could have been not an accident. It could. It just we don't know, which is so sad for this for the Persian princess. In two thousand and five, the Edhi Foundation, a nonprofit in Pakistan who focuses on emergency aid, missing persons, women shelters, handicapped people, education, refugees, and many other things, took possession of her body. And finally, in 2008, they gave her a proper burial in which she so deserved in Pakistan. And there she rests. Oh, I'm so happy that 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 happened at least. Yes. So we don't know. We don't know. We don't know where she came from. We don't know how she came to be, why she came to be. But she was laid to rest by an organization that sounds like a wonderful organization. It does. It does sound like a wonderful organization. Yeah, and she'll be ever. She'll be forever known as the Persian princess. I don't know if these guys are the the gentlemen who attempted this counterfeit mummy. I don't know if they're just like super ballsy or just super fucking dumb. Maybe both. (laughs) And the reason why I say that is because in my case, the guy could find the materials from the era to make his forgeries. He could find canvases that were of the era. He could, 
use the same paints as from the era. But how did these, I don't understand how these guys thought they would get away with faking something that fucking old. You can't go back that far to get stuff. Well, and I just don't understand why they decided an unparalleled archaeological find would not be scrutinized. (laughs) Yes. So I, I think that they never intended to sell off the black market. I think mm-hmm. that they o- had always intended to find some millionaire who liked to didn't have a problem collecting off the black totally. market, and they just did a sloppy, half-assed job. I think that they totally desecrated her grave, which if this was an unmarked burial ground, at least she was given a proper burial at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I think they did a slop job and I think that they never expected to be found out by authorities or any kind of academics in the totally archaeological field. They also, um, Akbar, Ali Akbar made a video of himself selling, trying to sell the mummy and that's how he was caught is the video started to circulate and somebody narked. I'm like, you made video evidence, you fucking know. They're stupid. They were totally counting on some evil millionaire. Yes. Who, like, collects exotic animals and fucking black market art and antiquities to buy her. Clearly does not give a shit about being haunted whatsoever. Yeah. They were really hoping for this, like, comic book villain yeah in real life it's like a dr evil character exactly to come Mm -hmm. just be like 11 million (laughs) dollars i'll take it like it's just it's insane Uh, they were they i i couldn't find if they were ever convicted but they could face up to 10 years in prison which i do think they deserve because they we don't really know what happened but on my my opinion is that they desecrated this woman's grave and yeah. totally exploited her body for financial gain, which is disgusting. And it's like, honestly, if you're going to forge a mummy and you're going to sell it on the black market, why don't you like organically make the mummy from like paper mache? I only like organic mummies. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, like fashion it together with like, I don't know, elephant bones and like... Elephant bones? How big is this mummy? An, okay, I don't know. It could be chicken one, bones. Just one <laughs> leg of an elephant, just one bone from an elephant and that's the whole body. I'm just saying, pencil etchings left? Come on, Come amateur on. hour. Get it together. See, take some tips from Wolfgang. Uh, seriously. Do your fucking homework. Uh, like t- it's the early 2000s you can youtube this people <laughs> youtube how to make a mummy yes how to make a counterfeit mummy yes how to That's forge Cassie's a mummy youtube search history is how to take apart my vacuum how to make a counterfeit mummy yes yes uh, but also too i'm thinking okay where in the world are mummies 
like run-of-the-mill Egypt. Why wouldn't they just go to Egypt? And just take no a mummy gonna, from their museum. Well, just make a mummy in Egypt and try to sell it. No one's going to question it. You go to the one place who's never found a mummy, the smallest country, one of the smaller countries in the Middle East, and you expect them not to be excited about a huge find like this? I'm going to find a mummy right now in my backyard. <laughs> I actually thought I found a mouse mummy in my pool and it was just a ball of moss I was so freaked out I don't think that would be called a mummy I think that's a dead body (laughs) underwater mummy underwater mummy isn't the whole point of being a mummy is that you're completely dry (laughs) dry I guess I guess I guess that was uh counter what if you found a mummy an actual mouse mummy and it's like wrapped if you find the mummification the mummified body of a mouse you need to start asking everybody in your family questions it's got it's Who encrypted it? from like what Stuart Little I don't know what is that what's a famous mouse <laughs> yes Fifle oh that's one of my favorites <laughs> and we digress oh no well this is a great episode back yes it is but shout out to the kids from the eighties and the nineties who watched Fifle Goes West that was one of my favorites pretty sweet. It was, I mean, come on. Who doesn't love a Jewish mouse? Come on. Was that the story? I think. Right? Was I even singing the right song? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It's hard. We're getting old. Anyways. (laughs) We are getting old. That's why 2000 seems so close. It's because, like, our brains are warped. I forget it's 21 years ago. We're in the fucking Matrix. I know. It's glitching. This episode is a glitch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On that note, thank you so much for listening. Thank Thank you you so much for uh, welcoming us back after a summer vacation. It's great to be back. And we will be back next week with a one and done episode, as always. And don't forget, love yourself. Lock your doors. And light some motherfucking sage. Cheers to that. Cheers to that.